Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Palm. Palm is back and available on Verizon. Palm is a small, practical companion device that syncs with your existing smartphone, so all your info is seamlessly connected. Palm isn't a replacement for your smartphone, but it has all the same mobility and capability, allowing you to leave your smartphone behind so you can focus on what's in front of you. Go to palm.com to learn more and run to your nearest Verizon store to check out Palm for yourself. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, he's got Doc Holliday's respiratory infection. It's Andy Greenwald! Do you think future generations will look back on these weeks of the podcast and just be able to point to the moment when it just, it went over? Like that was it for me? How many generations in the future are we talking? Because the, the earth is on a clock right now, you know? I watched First Reformed on Saturday night. <laughs> that filled my head with some ideas. None of them good. So, um, Greenwald, it's great to see you. What's left of you? Andy yeah. is uh, playing hurt today, but we're going to thug it out. <laughs> uh, it's Monday. It's the day after the Golden Globes. It's the day after Big Dick Nick sent us back to the NFC conference divisional Week playoffs. Two. Divisional I don't know. Playoffs. You know, we're so used to bye weeks. I know. Chris. It's so weird. It's just like once you've been in one playoffs, <laughs> uh, I'm flying high because I went from Eagles victory. Yeah. To running the table of the ringers of the big pictures, I should say. Uh, Golden yeah, we're going to talk wins pool. globes in all forms, but I think we need to look at it through the most important lens, which is you as a winner. <laughs> look, it, it turns out the that big being winners a last forty-one-year-old <laughs> man who's been watching award shows for like nigh on twenty-one years yeah. gives you a little bit of insight into the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, <laughs> and you know you don't have to worry about like voting, quote unquote. I mean, I guess you do. I don't know who these people are, but. <laughs> There are a few key things that you can just focus on where it's like, oh, yeah, Michael Douglas is old and famous. Yeah. They don't bring old, famous people out there. No offense to Alan Arkin, unless they're <laughs> going to give them awards, you know, and Michael Douglas is kind of almost the most famous person in that room still to a lot of a lot of people. Do you think Alan Arkin listens to this podcast and he's going to feel a little bit slighted? <laughs> what if Adam Arkin does and he's just like, yo. That's my dad. Yeah, that's my dad. <laughs> I would hope so. So... I was able to call Michael Douglas, Kaminsky Method, never seen that show. Yeah. I had the bright idea to select Sandra O oh, number one in the wins pool because, because she's hosting. Right, smart. Uh, also, she's fantastic on Killing Eve. Yeah, deserving. Yeah, but, but. just like kind of obvious. Glenn Close, the wife, just a just classic HFPA core right there. Yeah. What else did I get right? Corone for Roma. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking Rick, Rick Madden came through. Vicky! <laughs> I got a golden globe, Vic! I would love it's to. so heavy! If we had a. Uh, still... I said I was going to do this entire podcast in Richard Madden voice because I, I ran the table, but I just feel like it would be off for you. No, I, I couldn't roll with that. But I, I do want to say, I wish we still did video pods if only I could recreate my wife's. My wife sat with me on the couch, very generous of her to, for like the first hour of Golden Globes uh-huh. before she said what her brain had been thinking, which is, I don't care about any of this. Right. Respect. Richard Madden won, and uh, he got up, and she sort of laughed, and she said, oh, that's the show we didn't like very much. And I said, correct. And then he got up, and he started speaking, and it was as if she melted, like, 10%. <laughs> really? Like, there was just suddenly, she went a little bit limp, yeah. and, like, a very fond, <laughs> almost season three madman John Hamm takes the screen uh-huh. smile uh-huh. appeared on her face. Did you tell her about my imitation? In that moment, I didn't. 
You know, I usually do regale her in our limited time together as a couple on the couch. I usually like to bring you up as much at as least, possible. At least second, you know, like kids are asleep. Popcorn's a popping. Netflix is firing up. And I'm she's like, like, she sits down in front of you yeah. and she's like, tell me about Chris. No, she wraps up in a chenille throw. You know, it's a little bit chillier here in LA. And yeah. I'm like, so Chris has been golfing again recently. <laughs> and she just leans forward. Just She's listens. Like, What's his handicap? Tell, tell me everything. Um, yeah. So what I mean to say is, I guess Richard Madden, he's he's a charming guy. Yeah, that Scottish it, accent's delightful. Bodyguard also seemed like Golden Globes catnip, as did uh, a very English scandal. Is it very British or very English? Uh, now you put it. I, I am not in a state today where I'm going to be able to. Ben was all one for that. I was thrilled about Amanda, that. Amanda, I was watching the the show with Amanda Dobbins yeah. and Sean Fennessy. Amanda was really pulling for Hugh Grant. I was not because she was encroaching on my lead in the wind share. <laughs> right. Wind's pool. But yeah, um, let's talk a little bit about the show. We're also going to talk about some of the movies that were nominated last night that right. we've seen recently, like Vice and If Beale Street Could Talk. And we're also going to chat just very briefly because you can only say so much about these snippets. But uh, we got a couple of really nice appetizers for 2019 television. The first footage from the last season of Game of Thrones First footage from Watchmen and uh, a really fun trailer for Fosse Verdon. Do you want to burn through that first? I feel like that's some... Can I just say I, I am absurdly excited for Fosse Verdon. I know you are. So it's executive produced by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Right. And it's run by Stephen Levinson, who did Dear Evan Handler on Broadway. Dear Evan Hansen. Hansen. I think Evan, Evan Handler from is Sex an actor, City. and he's in it, I think. He was on Californication, I believe. Anyway, let me tell you about this cast. Uh-huh. Sam Rockwell is Bob Fosse, famous choreographer. Right. We saw the look last night on stage. Michelle Williams is Gwen Verdon. Great. Margaret Qualley is Ann Rinkin. Wow. Norbert Leo Butts is Patty Chayefsky. Amazing. Aya Cash is Joan Simon. Very happy about that. Nate Cordry is Neil Simon. Yeah. Bianca Morokin as Cheetah Rivera. Yes. And Kelly Barrett. As Liza Minnelli. This is, FX has this. This is like fucking ragtime, but for Broadway, this is great. FX has this lane locked where it's, you're a, I can't tell whether you're more excited about the actor side of that yeah. list or the character side of that list. Either way, you've bought a ticket. Yes. It looks great. And it's, trailer it's far great. enough from all that jazz that I don't think it'll be sacrilegious to do this. And I think I'm really, I'm really excited for the Michelle Williams song and dance routines. I think it'll be interesting because we've entered into this phase, especially with FX's stuff, where biopics and historical anthology series, they're all the rage. We're getting a lot of them. But they are becoming increasingly samey mm-hmm. in terms of tone, in terms of either seriousness of purpose or particular agenda with the type of story you want to tell. This looks like, obviously, there's a story to tell among, about these characters, but it looks like it's leading with style, which I appreciate. I think it will set it apart, and I think it should be a lot of fun. So then we had a little bit of Game of Thrones. So HBO. So it's basically just a scene. It's like John and and uh, Danny are standing together, and uh, Sansa walks up to them, and then John looks did, at Sansa, and goes, "My wife." <laughs> did you? Are we talking about Sasha Baron Cohen's hair? Did we? Uh, do you think he got hair transplant? Uh, do you think he got a hair transplant? <laughs> I think. I think. I think he got what he paid for. I think he looks great. Somebody last night, I was like, "Holy shit." Yeah. This guy's really just <laughs> committed to the bit. What, who was it? Oh, you know what it was? And no disrespect. Yeah. It, I think it was the ads for Fallon. It was Cranston on Fallon. You thought he looked really like... Like he had, he'd been to Dr. Spockerman. <laughs> like he just went, <laughs> yeah. he went to Dr. Spockerman and said, give me the Aslan from yeah. Lion Witch in the Wardrobe. <laughs> yeah. Give me the full Narnia. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> it's not that I would like a Caesar. I would like a resplendent <laughs> you, mane. You think you're sick, but you're not. <laughs> I'm sick. You're so I healthy. Okay, so Game of Thrones back a little bit. Did you, I'm just going to put you on the spot here. Do you have a take on this? Did you for a second forget the characters' names just then? Uh, like so a little as bit. As Mallory will happily tell you, yeah. I've been walking around being like, I wonder what's going <laughs> to happen with Littlefinger this season. You know? <laughs> like, I can't remember any of it. Right. It's just been too long. I, t- I don't know what to tell you guys. It's just, I'm going to get back there. I'm going to get into my spring training for it. Yep. Uh, but it's just been too long. I mean, it was not very much, mm-hmm. but it was the right moment to show, I guess. You know, it, what what is left of this season is a little bit of bringing everybody together and then a lot of breaking it all down for the sure. final whatever. And yeah. So this was one of the last bits of bringing it all together. Uh, Daenerys and Winterfell. Great. Yeah. It's and, exciting. And then like the one of the shows that I think HBO has some hopes that will uh, retain some of the Game of Thrones market share, although I, I don't imagine it'll be quite as big a sensation, is Damon Lindelof's adaptation of The Watchmen mm-hmm. or his remix of The Watchmen is I think his word that he used in his uh, fascinating Instagram mm-hmm. post that was talking about why and how he was going about adapting this beloved cult graphic novel mm-hmm. and one time it was the source material for Zack Snyder's movie yes. about seven or eight years ago when was that? I don't remember time. Was it 2010? Uh, it was around the time Game of Thrones was last It time. looks awesome though. Jeremy Irons Regina King is in it um a lot of people are in it. Huge cast. Yeah. Didn't tell you very much. It just looked kind of stylish and interesting. And then the internet's buzzing because they're assuming that Jeremy Irons is playing... Old uh, Ozymandias, Old right? Ozymandias. Right. Yeah, who was played in the film by... Uh, oh, speaking of Amanda Dobbins, Matthew Good. Oh, right. Which is interesting, you know, and I could take it or leave it. Honestly, my feeling about this, and, and we've talked about this, and, you know, Damon is a friend of the pod, like... I want to be surprised by this. I want it to. F- I want it to be fresh and exciting. And I'm less interested in chasing Easter eggs than just seeing what the hell they're doing. Yeah, sure. HBO stays in the lead in these things, uh, in terms of the conversation, anyway, in terms of driving the debate about television, partly by the value of their content, but also by the value of their marketing and the heavyweight brand. Mm-hmm. And they pick their spots. And so to start the year off being like a with a giant throat clearing, here you go. Like we've got this teed up for you. Was very effective. Some of their more interesting projects were just in this quick blur of titles at the end. Yeah. You know, they have a lot of stuff coming. Obviously, we've talked on this podcast before about how under AT&T, they're planning on boosting their production overall. But it's a new year. You know, there's a lot of new stuff to look forward to. And True Detective comes first next week. You're very excited about this. I'm very excited. I have reason to be. Uh, When you saw Mahershala last night, and um, obviously he won— Again, for Green Book, I, I shouldn't say again. It seems I, I guess I got my memory wrong. He did not win the Golden Globe for Moonlight. He did win the Oscar for Moonlight. Mm-hmm. I believe. You see him on stage, and you're like, "Was there a moment when collectively we thought he wasn't a star, where we were like, that guy's the sixth lead on House of Cards? <laughs> I mean, that guy's a superstar. <laughs> yeah, he's great. He carries himself that he's way. Great. It's cool. Yeah. All right. So back to the back to the Globes. Yeah. When you were talking about winning the pool, and we started obviously in a more um, a little bit of a jokey place about the show. I think it's appropriate. You know, I think the danger of our elevation of Oscar season to the fifth season uh, or award season is the fifth season recognized in the lunar year Mm -hmm. is just the total arbitrariness of the Golden Globes. We say this every year. We have no idea who the shadowy cabal of international bankers and journalists and financiers are who vote on these things. (laughs) We sometimes reap the benefit of such a small chaotic group making decisions that influence the culture because they tend to often want to surprise and, you know, and shock and upend narratives by nominating or awarding people before 
maybe the culture is caught up to them. Mm -hmm. That can be a good thing. But other times you get nights like last night, which are just sort of confounding, sometimes frustrating, and mostly kind of blah. I mean, and then you marry that with a broadcast that was pretty poor. I'm happy to step aside and let you agree or disagree. I agree. But I, you know, I think the thing that the Golden Globes have always had going for it is the sort of, whether the Hogan Foreign Press in, in, embraces this or not, but the people they've brought in to be up on the podium have certainly embraced it. That This, this award is chaotic. Yeah. Everyone's it's, drunk. It's supposed to be the— It's Hollywood's party. Hollywood's party, yeah. So at least let's have fun with Though, it. Though, as Sean pointed out on a, on a very good episode of Big Picture that they recorded yeah. last night and is up this morning for everybody who wants to subscribe, and Big Picture is on its own feed, so check for it there if you're, if you're, if you're looking for it. It's on the Big Picture feed. Sean was saying that, like, yes, it's a, it's a carnival and, and it's a sideshow in some respects, but Oscar voting opens tonight. Yep. And so this is the, in terms of recency bias, Glenn Close will get nominated. Glenn Close might win. Yes. Just just off the strength of that acceptance speech. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And I think that now... Rami, Rami Malek's getting nominated. Rami Malek's getting not, not only that, Bohemian and Green Book now must be the presumptive favorites along with Roma. Yeah. So let's talk about the show second. Let's talk mm-hmm. about the, the significance in the awards first. Particularly what we saw last night was a narrative coming into conflict with a reality. Mm -hmm. And the narrative that Sandro spoke very beautifully about at the end of the monologue that many other um, nominees and recipients and presenters spoke of about representation and diversity and women in Hollywood, all important valid comments and arguments to to be made, the awards for the most part did not reflect that uh, line of thinking. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. And I am both due to severe sinus congestion and also just, you know, discomfort with this. I struggle with this. I don't like the fact that art, that movies, all TV, all of which are made for a variety of reasons and with a lot of more nuance than we can ever discuss on a podcast or on Twitter, every year around this time become heroes and villains. Mm-hmm. I just think it's the worst way to look at things. It's, it's the worst way to interact the, with it. The harder and and you know we have a tendency to look at things in terms of winners and losers, right? Anyway, we gamify pop culture, and you and I do this as much as anybody. But yes, that aspect that you're talking about—that someone's victory is somehow uh, tarnished because this other person didn't win—I mm-hmm. think is. Look, I, I, my attitude about award season is just who gives a shit anyway. So <laughs> sure. it's sort of tough when it becomes this. I think it's an interesting stage for, from which to debate certain ideas. Yes. But I do think that like the idea of Richard Madden, Madden winning over Billy Porter yeah. is like, that doesn't diminish what Billy Porter did no. at all or what Pose achieved at all. Nor it, the, nor, the significance nor of it really being, saying that. No, but, I understand nor that. Nor the significance of it being nominated. I mean, there's a couple things to be. There's a couple levels to this. One is Hollywood Foreign Press going to Hollywood Foreign Press. Yeah, we don't know how many lunches or dinners Richard Madden attended. We don't know what Netflix. I mean, there's always this stuff, and this is now true in all award shows. There's gaming. There's politicking. This is all relevant, and it and it's real, even though it's not spoken of. Two, as you said at the very beginning, the Bodyguard is an extremely, extremely, just like a very British scandal, extremely Hollywood Foreign Press project. Mm-hmm. And, and similarly. Um, Michael Douglas winning over Donald Glover. They're always going to vote for Michael Douglas. Donald Glover knew knew Donald Glover wasn't even there. Right. He was like, fuck that. Um, That said, it was, 
I think the Golden Globes have been given a little bit more credence recently because of their ability to disrupt narratives and willingness to be surprising. That it felt dispiriting to some that the two movies that have become, again, through no necessarily, not necessarily any fault of their own, the exemplars of traditional safe thinking or movie making, Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book, were the winners here. Um, so some people are taking that hard. The Green Book thing, I don't even, I'm not even prepared to wade into yet because I, have you seen it? Green Book? I've not seen it. I've not seen it. So for people who aren't aware of this, this is my understanding of the Green Book story. It hit some festivals over the summer and wowed and delighted people. People said Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala were incredible in the movie. It was sort of old-fashioned in a wonderful way. Like, they don't make movies like that anymore in a storytelling sense. Performance, Mm -hmm. great. People immediately were like, this is going to be a crowd pleaser. The backlash to it, it's not even a backlash. It hit a stronger critical headwind than expected, I think, because people saw it. And again, I have not seen it, so I cannot speak to this. Saw it as a very old-fashioned Hollywood take on race relations, mm-hmm. almost from the driving Miss Daisy school of thought, where through the actions of a noble black person, a white person becomes more enlightened. This has led people to have extreme reactions to it, pro, whatever, but it's become a flashpoint. It's also because it markets itself, and this John and Amanda talked about this, it markets itself as a true story. But there's been some debate, yes. especially from the family of, of Don Shirley about its accuracy. Yes, because as we saw when they won for Best Screenplay, one of the screenwriters is the son of Viggo Mortensen's character. Right. And so he's clearly writing, he's not only writing this as a tribute to his father, he said from the stage something that is the sort of sentiment that we all would have applauded 10 years ago, but it's begun to ring increasingly hollow in America, Mm -hmm. which is this idea that, well, if we all just got along a little better, we're all the same, we all want the same, okay, great. Right. That's fine, but what does that do for us? Which... Brings us to the next question. What do we want movies to do for us? Which brings us to the other point, which is something I think you spoke to a few weeks ago, which is we are all casting around here trying to find some meaning, trying to find some hope, and we are definitely looking to movies and TV in a way that we might not, with a ferocity, that we might not be at more uh, tranquil times. Yeah. I would say. Absolutely. We want these to mean something because we are desperate for signs of hope. So... You know, regardless of whether or not you think Black Panther is better than Roma, I don't. Or Black Panther is better than First Reformed, which wasn't nominated. I, I don't think I think it's better than that either. But if Black Panther were to pull off an upset and win Best Picture at the Globes or Best Picture at the Oscars, it would be cheering about what it might say about us as a society, both in terms of the representation, but also that a movie that is truly beloved could win an award like yeah. this. So all of that is in the background for last night, all that is in the mix, fairly or unfairly. I think also just like the still present storm clouds over Hollywood. Yeah. Over representation, not only that, but also over who controls the levers of power in that town, you know? And then at the end of the day, after all the enlightenment that I think people would like to think that we've been privy to over the last 18 months, if not years, that pretty pro forma old Hollywood stuff like Green Book and Bohemian would win. Yes. And particularly, it could be galling, it could just be intriguing. You know, Brian Singer still is credited as the director of Bohemian Rhapsody. Brian Singer is, I don't even know the language to use, credibly accused, has been repeatedly accused of sexual wrongdoing um, Mm -hmm. throughout his career. He quit or left or was fired from this movie in production due to uh, 
you know, litigation among the guilds. He retained his credit, even though his assistant director ended up finishing the film. Bohemian Rhapsody, not without its own uh, scandals, sure. because people have said that it sort of straight washes Freddie Mercury's later years. Right. It's a lot. It's a lot. And I, you know, I definitely direct people to Sean and Amanda's podcast and Sean's writing about this because it, 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 it is a moment. I mean, I don't know if there was ever a moment when movies were just movies, but it certainly feels like you cannot write anything about movies right now without also writing about business and labor and also politics. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think the harder thing for me was just the, the there was a, that, that tension, I guess, that I'm speaking to between all three of those polls just felt very heavy in the room last night. There was not much fun to be had and no better example of that to me than the hosts. Mm-hmm. Andy Samberg is a very funny guy and Sandra Oh is a, tremendous, incredible, incandescent actor. They were not a good pair to host this show. Maybe they were the perfect pair, considering the tensions that I'm speaking to, but it was a strange line to walk, and I guess maybe to everyone's credit, they saw what they were working with with the two of them, and they decided just to walk that line. They didn't try to push it in any direction. It never went too funny. Certainly didn't go too funny. Mm -hmm. Certainly didn't go too weird. They were just Well, they almost did like a meta commentary on what they what the two of them were going to be yes not necessarily capable i'm sure they could have come out and actually like lit the place on fire if they were given the material but right. they did a kind of like we're going to be cute mean by by having these sort of like oh you're beautiful you're yeah. burnt you know and i think that uh i don't think it's i don't think that that's an easy job Look, I, oh, I, there's a reason why the same five or six people do these things and over and over again. And there's a reason why again. there's no Oscar host right yeah, now. Yeah, and there's a reason why there's no Oscar host right now. But when people, like, I think that there was, like, when Amy Poehler and Maya Rudolph came out, as, and this is the same thing for sometimes when Will Ferrell comes out and does bits yeah. during some award shows, or Steve Carell was really good during his his appearance. Yeah. They're doing that, like, th- that's Jamal Crawford off the bench. Yeah. You know what I mean? They have... There's nothing ventured, nothing gained by them being hilarious and absurd. Yes. And if Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig want to come out and improv for 45 seconds before they actually do yep. best animated picture, that's fine. It's a completely different thing to walk out on stage, lights come up, 50 million people, 40 million yep. people, 25 million people, whatever it is, are watching you. And you've got to navigate, welcome to the show, song and dance. I'm going to be a little bit testy. I'm also going to be real with you and bring up some of the stuff that's been going on. I'm going to have a personal narrative and I'm going to keep the show moving. You can't do that and also do like, I'm going to do weird voices for 45 seconds and rub my face into one other person's face, which I thought was hilarious, but wouldn't work as hosting. So I kind of empathize with the position that Sandra Oh and Andy Samberg were in in so much as like, I don't really know given what their skill set is, they were going to do with this? No, it's just that their but skill sets are not— it was obviously not the year for Ricky Gervais to come out with a pint in his hand and start just completely lighting the place on fire. Yeah, I think it's just that the two hosts that we had were not uh, complementary to one another. Their skill sets. And j- even while they were extremely complementary, different spelling to everyone in the room. Right. Here's an alt pitch for you if we should host. Christian Bale. <laughs> <laughs> This is my point, though, because, like, if you let Christian Bale up there without a red light flashing in his eyes, and he's just like, all right, governor! Legend. (laughs) I mean, I got to be honest with you about Christian Bale. I've heard him speak before. I've heard his real accent. Uh Uh-huh. But that was— He is is a very wealthy, very successful man. Yeah. He's been a successful working actor for over 30 years. And I think is largely based in California for a long time. The fact that his— Happy Place is 
third urchin from the left in Oliver <laughs> is yeah. amazing yeah. to me. I love it. He referred to his children as burrito and banana. Uh-huh. He thanked Satan. <laughs> Said he was going to play Mitch McConnell. He looked great. He doesn't care. You know, I really respected that. That's because he has five years left on Earth because he keeps doing such <laughs> radical yeah. weight gains and his, losses. His body is not, his body is a failed state yeah, right now. I know. Um, that's, that's a fair point to make. But I thought he was great. I thought he was truly alive. But look, you know, to circle back to this, we want too much from this stuff now. You know, like I, I am always happy to see uh, Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg win. It was really nice valedictory sort of run for the Americans to yeah, win that nice award. nice run of awards for that show for the um, last. I've said before, these guys have been on this podcast. They're wonderful guys. They've been wonderful to me. Huge talents. When they won this and they won the Emmy, they took out their pieces of paper and they thanked everyone they should thank. It was lovely. I mean, they thanked Lana Kim, who's done an incredible job on PR for that show from the beginning mm-hmm. and has been a great friend to, to me in helping cover the show as well. That's appropriate. It was not firecrackers. Mm-hmm. It was not that thrilling, you know, but what do we want here? You know, it's very, very hard to get it all exactly right all the time. And then when a couple things miss, like they did last night, the whole thing starts to seem like it's falling apart. I think also you and I, it's funny watching it from our specific perspectives. Because if you watch all of these awards caliber movies throughout the year, and especially at this time of year where you're catching up on stuff, I think it just makes... It just breaks your brain when stuff like Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody wins because you've just watched 20 really good movies. And I'm not taking away from the relative merits of both of those films, but one thing that does seem to have consensus is those two movies aren't the best two movies of the year. Right. There's lots of debate about what they are, but I haven't really seen anyone be like, God, Green Book and Bohemian are just in a class of their own. And when these things happen... You know, I think that we just have, there's A, a crisis in confidence about what you're doing with your life because you're just like, what the hell? Like, yeah. if if you told me I had to watch, you know, I had to watch basketball all year long, and then on one night, Golden State and Toronto were not the best two teams. It was, we just gave it to Memphis. Yeah. You know, it would just be, it would be like, well, what the hell did I spend all this time watching basketball for? Yes. And, you know, honestly, it makes me feel more respectful of, Alfonso Cuaron's strategy with Roma, I think he gave a quote talking about it last night, being like, look, my movie is going to be seen by more people than would have seen it any, right. in any circumstance by being on Netflix. And I think Roma's the best movie of the year. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, I'm, I would never even pretend that people would like it as much, as many people would like it as might potentially like or enjoy the experience of watching Bohemian Rhapsody or Green Book. Mm-hmm. That's a given. So the fact that Roma won two awards last night wonderful. And the fact that Roma is available to however many million people subscribe to Netflix right now, ultimately probably a good thing. It takes the narrative out of everything having to happen in these six months and acknowledging that this is a tougher sell with a slower build um, and it will exist for people. Mm -hmm. And people might discover it in six months, a year from now, and three years from now, and it'll always be valued for that, apart from the award conversation. That said, another kind of radical suggestion I would make that would never happen because as we've discussed and as Michael Douglas's winning proved, the Golden Globes want stars. The Golden Globes should be a TV award show. That's my next take. God, you know what? I was about to go the exact opposite direction. With you. Oh, yeah. I was about to say that I feel like the, the TV awards that they do seem completely detached from planet Earth. I agree. I just felt, okay, let's come at it from two different angles. Well, I think, the I, problem, I think we're agreeing uh, yeah. that the split format Yeah. Could be a benefit because you get a wider variety of people there and, you know, sparks can fly or whatever. But just 
it's not working. I don't think. I, I, it, it felt so confused to me mm-hmm. because there was, but maybe it's because both halves were confused this year. What were you going to say? I was just going to say that I think that there's, TV is just sort of breaking away from being able to be covered by an awards season. So because it's so constant, because you're so far away from like, here come the shows back in the fall. Here comes the break. They're they're coming all the time. They're coming all the time. They're coming all at once. They're coming on every different platform you can imagine. They're taking years off. Every language you can imagine taking years off. Right. And I don't think that you have any kind of, uh, there's no supremacy of, of broadcast anymore or network or even broadcast cable. So you get into this situation where, the stuff that's being celebrated, while albeit very worthy, like the Americans, yeah. you're just like, has the Americans been off the air for like almost a year now? Like, I mean, it just it just feels detached from. This is a great point. That I didn't appreciate. And I and I think that the Emmys do their best and at least have the the celebration of television off in this bubble thing. But when you combine it with something that's so calculated yes. to hit at Christmas, the only thing you're going to be thinking about are these twelve movies that are all going to be vying for the 10 Best Picture nominations or the Gold Globes or these actors or whatever. But TV is so spread out and so, so you know, disparate that it just makes it feel like a little I, bit more leaden. I didn't appreciate that at all until you said it that succinctly. Like, TV is just, it's just constantly flowing now. There is no, there are no demarcations. All the old rules have been thrown away mm-hmm. in terms of the length of seasons, in terms of where you can see shows, in terms of how you can see shows, in terms of when the shows are going to air. It's completely arbitrary. And for many years, when it's still kind of, you could kind of wrap your arms around a schedule for when TV happened, the Golden Globes functioned kind of like the All-Star break. Uh, Shows, if if you consider the fall season still having some value Mm -hmm. leading into the holidays, then the Golden Globes was the midway point. Let's recognize who's having a great rookie season. Let's recognize the veterans who surprised us, leading up to the Emmys as the sort of official word on matters. Mm -hmm. Now, it's just chaos. And I think you're totally right. When did Maisel come out? December 4th? Uh, season 2, yes. Yeah, so December 4th, we three, Maisel's second season, which would be mid-season if we were just doing this normally, yep. got Rachel Brosnahan won. Alex Borstein was nominated. I think it was, what, did it get nominated for Best best Show, Comedy, or Musical? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, all those things happen. But then we're also celebrating the Americans, which was has been over for quite some time. Yeah, and Atlanta and Versace, which was quite some time ago. Yeah, Versace ago. is another show that just seems like it's still, it's somehow still eligible for awards, even though it feels like it's it's from two or three years ago now. It's very strange. I think, you, I think that you're right. I, I was leaning into the TV side of it only because, maybe in response to without even realizing it, because TV is so fluid and amorphous, let's have another award show for it. But right. maybe they could take the space, the real estate that had been given to film, and maybe consider different ways to cover TV, such as, you know, whether it's Breakout Performer or Best New Show or, you know, get creative with categories that the Emmys don't recognize in order to expand the playing field and have it give it some import. Also, just the way that, you know, they introduced this Carol Burnett Award and gave it to Carol Burnett, a sign that they are, you know, they want, that the celebrities, the, the, the award that Jeff Bridges got was always there to guarantee that at least one major celebrity would be there. Right. Year after year. Now they're getting tons of celebrities on the TV side. I mean, there was the joke about Jim Carrey having to go sit in the TV right. ghetto or whatever it was last night. And next year, when they do <clears throat> Big Little Lies season two, it's three of the biggest actresses in Hollywood will be there yes. as TV stars. Yes, yeah. and so uh, th- so the, clearly they're doubling down on that. And it just felt like the Oscar race, such as it is, has become increasingly politicized and intense. But we don't know who's seeing these movies, how many people are seeing them, when they're getting it to get a chance to see them. Whereas the TV debate, people— 
and the internet and the coverage is more comfortable with TV stuff because it's, you just sink into it. Mm-hmm. It's constant. It's this constant tap now that is running all the time, and we can tweet about it and write blog posts about it and do podcasts about it and check in with it and re- and and uh, binge it or revisit it or reboot it or whatever. It's just so constant that you can feel an award show like the Golden Globes being like, let's just hang out here. Yeah. Let's hang out with our cozy buddies yeah. and bring them back again and again and again. I would actually suggest, here's my suggestion. Yeah. Is do the Golden Globes twice a year. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. Wow. That is a spicy, you, that spicy was like take. You were a World War One uh, soldier, and I was like, why don't we go over the trench one more time? <laughs> Dunkirk 2. Let's run it back. Yeah, Dunkirk 2. I left something at the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, because that way you would be able to do, let's say you did it in July. Okay. Uh, summer Globes. Summer Globes for the first half of the year okay. and the first half of TV. And that way it would be, I mean, Summer Globes. Here's here's Summer Globes. It's Krasinski, yeah. Emily Blunt. Yeah. It's Black Panther. Okay. It's The Avengers. Yeah. Like, come on. And what else is good? In you do summer? it like Indie Spirits. You do it on the beach. You do it on a tent in Santa Monica. That's right. That's right. Everybody's got Bacardi breezers in their hands. That's right. Okay. Have it at Downey Jr.'s house. <laughs> Yes. Okay. On yes. the on the rooftop in Venice. Yes. No, but I think that there's there's a little bit of like you if you did that, you could then do, divide TV up into every 6 months and you would actually maybe get like a weird first half of the year, second half of the year awards thing going. Okay. Well, I I think the most telling thing from our completely schizophrenic breakdown or diagnosis of this is that this wasn't working. No. And then it felt like something should But they change. can't get rid of TV because they can't have it just be movies because then it's just like a drunker Oscars. Yes. And, you know, we'll have this debate for the next 50 years. We could have Sean Fantasy to have this debate. TV, I think, feels more exciting still. You know? It, it, I think Sean would disagree, but yeah. I know. I mean, look, let's switch to the movie side for a second and then okay. also talk about some movies because I made a tweet a couple weeks ago. Did you? I did. Uh, the joke of the tweet was basically that I loved Roma. Like, that was what I wanted people to say. And oh, everyone yeah, was, was like, like, Roma, Roma, Roma. It was like, why do you hate movies? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I would like to say that now that I've caught up on some films, uh-huh. it's quite a good year for movies. Yeah. There were very good movies. Yeah. It's great. Sure. But what's interesting to me, you know, and, and there were winners last night that are, like, I didn't like Vice, and we can talk about that in a moment. There's no question that Christian Bale is deserving of an award. Um, I really liked Beale Street. I'm thrilled to see Regina King win for it. And Olivia Coleman winning for The Favorite. Which did you is see The Favorite? Yeah, you liked it. I did. Yeah. Favorite is incredible. Yeah. It's only gotten better since I saw it and been thinking about it and thinking about it. But this does feel like another year, and we've been talking about this in TV, so allow me the novelty of throwing this argument on movies, even though I'm sure Sean and everyone else who pays more attention to this has been doing it for weeks and months. It feels very split to me in that there were incredible smaller films that I found myself deeply personally and emotionally engaged with. And then there is bigger stuff like Black Panther that everyone loved that is worthy of admiration and respect Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, And it feels a little scattershot. It does not feel like there are passionate consensus choices really in a lot of these categories that I feel enthused about commercially, critically, artistically, emotionally. And that may be me coming late to it, I could probably talk myself into a bunch of different angles here, but that is my loose take on it. That's where I'm kind of disappointed that, I'll put it this way. I am disappointed that Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book won 
And I'm disappointed if that's going to be the debate for the next few weeks. Yes. Although I do wonder whether or not the amount of scrutiny those movies are going to get in the next two weeks kind of hampers their chances in the Oscars itself. That being said, I'm sort of glad Stars Born and Black Panther are being spared from that bullshit to some extent. Okay. But I do think Black Panther and A Star is Born were the two movies that seemed to unite the movies that everybody went and saw with the movies that people cared about. Yeah, well, they were both really well done. Yeah. They were both great. Um, I think that if you do look at, I, I think it's worth noting, like if we're going to be reward, if it's the Oscars, if it's the Golden Globes, and we have a more traditional voting block and we're going to be voting for traditional types of things, Bohemian Rhapsody is extremely traditional. In, it's not necessarily in its subject matter, but in terms of its, you know, more or less yeah, performance biography, aside, yeah. heroic biography. Um, Black Panther is a superhero movie, but it is so exceptional and so groundbreaking in the way that it is a superhero movie that if we're going to be considering a superhero movie traditional, which we are at this point, mm-hmm. it certainly deserves to win. Star is Born, I don't think is groundbreaking. I just think it's an incredibly successful reinvigoration of tropes that everybody loves. I'm sort of, I, I'm kind of stunned that that didn't, that that isn't the far and away favorite for winning. Yeah, it's, it's weird. every single thing that Hollywood believes about itself yeah. with two people who, at least in Gaga's case, I think definitely play ball with the, with the promotional process. Yeah. And, and well, the narrative is right you there. You want them at the award show. You want them to go play shallow at the Oscars. You want them to have, yeah. you know, a good shot at winning. And I don't know if it, I don't know if it's going to happen. I'm looking at Andy I feel like we're on our last legs. So why don't we do some capsule <laughs> reviews of some movies that we caught up with over okay. the last couple of days. Bang it out. Let's talk about Big Dick Dick. Yeah, Big Dick, Dick Energy, Vice. Dick Cheney. Uh, watch that. I, I was like fine with its portrayal of Dick Cheney. <laughs> okay. Which, which I think was, uh, there, there's been some debate about whether or not it was somehow, uh, you know, forgiving or made it seem right. cool to be Dick Cheney. I didn't <laughs> what think a, that. What a take. I, I didn't <laughs> think that at all. I did feel like because of the relentless formal invention in it, it felt like a trailer for itself. Yeah. but Because I, it never settles down. But I was just, not not entertained. Yeah. So that 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 I guess I would say that about that movie. I was disappointed in it only because it's so hypermanic and stylized that it never settles down and delivers and delivers. I, I'll just end on that. I I thought it was interesting because Adam McKay, who is a writer and director and filmmaker and just producer, a person who I admire quite a bit. Obviously, mm-hmm. he's behind Succession. Obviously, he's he's made much better movies in the past, like Step Brothers. I mean that 1,000% sincerely. As you should. Um, my issue with the movie is twofold. Performances are just incredible. Yeah. I mean, and 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 again, I, I love when it plays fast and loose. I love when it plays. I love when the credits run 30 minutes into it. My problem with it is twofold. One, I think that it's... This is the same problem I had with The Big Short. It seems to have contempt for the people that it wants to reach. Hmm. Both of these movies have been like, here are the biggest stories that you nudniks didn't notice. And then both these stories are like, and you never will unless I have a naked woman in a hot tub. Or in this case, these shots of like, you didn't notice this was happening because you, you frivolous young women, were at raves. You remember that part in the beginning? I do. It seems sort of cheap. You know, I, I I don't quite get that. This idea of like, I'm going to educate you with fun because you're too slow to otherwise be educated that that, I, that runs through that movie. I That may be just me reacting to mm-hmm. it. The other issue with it for me was just, I didn't know if I bought the idea of power for power's sake in it. You know, he goes from an alcoholic Wichita lineman to the White House in about 
12 minutes of screen time yeah. just because Amy Adams gave him a stern talking to. Now, she is a double Golden Globe nominee, and she can be very effective when necessary. Yeah. But is that really all it took? I, there was just felt like there were I a few that there missing was pieces. A, there was a hole in the middle. There yeah. was a hole uh, in the middle of it where I thought that it had too much heavy lifting to do to be like, this is this, these are the, some of the things that Cheney did to change the way right. power is wielded from Washington, D.C. versus trying to get a, some sort of core of like why he did that and what shaped his ideas about that. And instead, he like you're saying, he goes from alcoholic Wichita lineman to, or Wyoming lineman, to, okay, I'm sitting at the foot of power here in the Nixon yeah. administration. I learned from Rumsfeld's mistakes and the Nixon's mistakes. And then after making myself incredibly rich, go on this like undefeated run yeah. where I just accumulate power and, and wield it from the shadows. And there's that crucial moment where he asks Rumsfeld what we believe mm-hmm. and Rumsfeld cracks up at yeah. him, which is a very funny bit. But I would argue that those guys actually have quite a, a strongly held belief mm. system, you know, and... Uh, that doesn't make it any less disturbing what they did, but I d- d- that's not interrogated at all. And it's interesting what he, McKay, chooses to focus on versus yes. the, what he kind of brushes aside. The fact that this guy has had multiple heart attacks <laughs> is like an incredible metaphor yes. for, for what he's done, <laughs> yes. right? And yet it's kind of treated as like a bit throughout, like, uh, call the hospital. Here it comes. Yeah, it's like it's like a Rob Riggle and Step Brothers <laughs> heart attack or something. It's like, I, you died. I, I agree with I, you. The, I saw my grandma. The, the, da- <laughs> the danger of biopics or making things loosely from history is you can cherry pick stuff and just ascribe significance to it. Mm-hmm. But you're ascribing significance with what you choose and with what you don't choose. And again, like the scene, the scenes where Cheney defends his daughter from his wife and, you know, respects her being a lesbian and, and still loves her. That's always been one of the most interesting aspects, just, you know, as someone who reads the news and pays attention to the world, that's an interesting aspect of Cheney's character. It's clearly an integral part of his character. I don't know what it was doing here other than to tick a box because I don't think, I think he was just presenting stuff. He was pushing stuff to the middle of the table. Yeah. And it's just, for me, that is not always the most successful way to tell a story that's going to be compelling on a thematic or emotional level. I mean, level. it seemed like what— Fiction would have helped almost. In the, the trailer, if the trailer is the true story, the true unknown story about how one man changed history, it seems like that crucial moment in the movie is the Cheney-Scalia meeting. Right, Where yes, they right. basically figure out a way to treat the executive branch as a, a monarchy almost. Yes. Uh, abs- absolute rulers. But they kind of skip past it. You know what I mean? Like, they mentioned it a couple of times, but I actually felt like Big Short was pretty... First of all, Big Short is an incredible movie, I it's think. It's a better movie. And I think is much more deliberate about the path going somewhere. They're showing yeah, you, procedure. here are these guys who are going to be really entertaining around this story, but then there is essentially a story about how these people all played fast and loose with mm-hmm. America's... The, the American financial system and lost. Mm-hmm. And and this is how it happened. And candidly, I needed Anthony Bourdain to explain uh, yeah, credit, I don't default swaps, you know? know. Yeah. So uh, I, I thought— I am the rube, by yeah. the way. So I, I, I'm kind of interested to see— I would, I, I would almost be interested to rewatch Vice in a little while and see how I felt about it. Briefly, though, let's just talk a little bit about Beale Street yeah. because that was another one that we both watched recently. Regina King won last night at the Golden Globes, and it's a gorgeous movie. I don't actually have like a ton to say about this movie other than it's gorgeous, it's compelling, 
It's it's beautifully acted. It it's almost I think getting drowned out because it is a quiet piece mm-hmm. of, of art mm-hmm. rather than like a loud piece of art. But I mean, what did you think of it? I'm just so happy that we have a sensualist like Barry Jenkins yeah. working at the top flight of American cinema and getting his movies made. His movies are absolutely gorgeous. James Laxton did the cinematography for this and for Moonlight, worth worth singling out. I found this movie haunting and I found it really, obviously it's deliberative, obviously it's small in some ways, but I found it really, really effective. I thought that the acting was stunning, particularly in the supporting roles. Um, but Stefan James is amazing. Kiki Lane, mm-hmm. who I'd never seen before, is great. But Coleman Domingo uh, as Tish's father is just wonderful. Um, Shout Michael, to Michael, Beach, Michael Beach back Michael in the Beach mix. bringing it. Brian Tyree Henry, who we put on the wall without having seen this movie, in some ways this might be his most amazing performance mm-hmm. of the year. It is a completely astonishing transporting 10 minutes of screen time that communicates more through his face than most movies do with their 200 pages of script. I also want to know when they stopped making the Rheingold in those bottles. I, that, that's a nice touch, too. The details. Yeah. You know, I, I, it, it's funny that in— I, I'm going to jump to First Reform, which I saw this weekend, too, and only to say that, could you hand me my glass of whiskey and Pepto-Bismol? <laughs> no, just to say that, like, I, I relate— I connect those movies just because they were such tight— I would um, close to masterpieces of cinema, capital mm-hmm. C— so invested in the history of visual storytelling and the types of yeah, movies. Yeah, drawing they on Wong Kar Wai and Robert Persson, yeah. Yes, drawing yeah. on and, and Ozu in the case of First Reformed and executing, mm-hmm. you know, in a way that was so pure in their vision. Now, the downside of movies that are, quote, so pure in their vision is that, again, they're not going to be for everyone. Sure. You know, it's going to be something that you can either, it either speaks to you or it doesn't. It makes you vibrate or it doesn't. I just thought there was something so haunting about the way Beale Street presented everything, presented this beautiful world, this sensual romantic world, and then put it through the lens of just deep, entrenched, systemic unfairness. Yeah. Which is, you know, can still be jarring for those of us who have led relatively privileged or fair lives. We're not used to that. We are not used to, this movie is being marketed correctly as a love story, and we are not used to love stories that are, circumvented not by, you know, the Titanic sinking, but by being on a street corner in New York in 1972 and being the wrong color. Right. Um, it is a, I, I think it is tremendous in small ways that add up. I have like a couple of pages of notes I just want to go through about yeah. other movies. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. I'm going to lie down. We're going to wrap it up, man. Let's wrap let it you, up. We got to get you to urgent ro- care. <laughs> roll me out of here. Uh, I love doing the podcast. We'll be back on Thursday. <laughs> One of us will. Get healthy, Baranskis. <laughs>